You ever gone to, you know, those movies and get there a little early and they have those games happening? You know, not, not games, but those clues. Have you done that sort of stuff? You know what I'm talking about? Well, I thought we'd start off our morning doing a little something like that. Okay? All right. So, so let's, let's see. Okay? <laughs> you came to church, not expecting to play a game, but I'm going to throw something at you. So why not? Here's clue number one. All right, ready? So there we go. Until recently... I was always the bridesmaid, but never the bride. Clue number two. I've been a con man, a slave owner, a successful businessman, and a convicted criminal. Clue number three. My career took off when my ship hit an iceberg, but my crowning achievement was a fight with a bear. And the answer... All right, you get the, you, you're not very good at this, you, right? Okay, let, let's try it again. Here we go. All right, ready? Kuna, although barely five feet tall, few people want to mess with me. <laughs> Mike Stone. <laughs> Mike Stone, he said. <laughs> Clue number two. We'll wait and see. Although born an Albanian, maybe, I don't know. Is he? I consider myself to belong to the world. Clue number three. For over 50 years, I've made my home with the sick, the dying, and the poorest of the poor. And the answer? All right, now you're getting the hang of it. Well, let's try it again, all right? Let's down a little bit, because you know, you're just so, so, so wild and crazy on me. <laughs> Clue number one, he's a faithful friend. Clue number two. He gives us new gifts each and every morning. Clue number three. He protects us from danger and comforts us during tough times. You guessed it. The dog. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. <laughs> um, both, I suppose, could be true. <laughs> Uh, but that little dumb game, I think, is somewhat like what's been happening with us over these past few weeks as we've been going through the uh, story of the Bible. Because you see, over these past weeks, what we've really been doing is exploring God's self-revelation. God has slowly but surely, clue by clue, revealing himself to us but always with a little bit of ambiguity, always with a little bit of, hmm, is it this or that? What happens here? Paul describes it as seeing through a glass darkly. You know, it's, it's just a little bit fuzzy. Now I forget my next notes. Shoot, I shouldn't have dropped that so quickly. <laughs> there we go. That, oh, yes, I know why now. Yes, because uh, God is this wonderfully accommodating God. So when he meets us, he always meets us where we're at, not where he's at. All right? He's going to meet us at, in our culture, in our language, in our times, our values. That's where God comes to us. And yes, he's going to nudge us forward. But the truth is, to quote another movie, we can't handle the truth. 
we can't look on his glory. So he gives us just enough. And let's be clear, the big philosophical question of the ancients was, who is God? What is God like? I mean, their question wasn't, you know, does God exist, right? They just took one look around and, and uh, at creation. I mean, sometimes creation is called the first Bible. You know, they looked around at creation and they said, wow, there's got to be something more than just me. I mean, for them, it was like a no-brainer. It's only been the last couple hundred years of all the countless eons we've been on this earth, <laughs> now that we're smart, that, um, <laughs> that we've started asking the question, I wonder if God does exist. And for the modern person, it's kind of like, you know, well, if I can see it, if I can observe it, if I can test it, if I can master it, well, if I can't do those things, then it probably doesn't exist. But for the ancient, if you can't see it, if you can't observe it, if you can't study it, if you can't understand it and master it, then it must be God. Right? <laughs> Interesting change. Interesting little twist. But that's why for them, this question of who is God was so hugely significant, even though it was filled with some ambiguity. So they looked at the story of creation, and as they did, they saw a God who created everything we see. They learned about a God who could take the chaos and make beautiful things out of it, fill the void with goodness. Right? But I wonder why God drove them out of the garden. I mean, can God handle being around sinful people? Is he more to be feared or loved? What's up with that? Hmm. Puzzle pieces, just a little blurry. Well, we move on then from Adam and through the um, first few chapters of Genesis, we come then to Abraham, and we learn that God calls people. He's actively involved in this world. He chooses the people, and, and, he, and he makes a promise to them. He calls them, gives them a purpose. But as we read the story, we're left thinking, hmm, does God have favorites? I wonder how you get to be God's favorite. Because if I could find that out, I'd kind of like to know. <laughs> well, we're left with Abraham, and then we have Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, the patriarchs, and they wind up back in Egypt as slaves this time. And along comes Moses, and then Joshua and the judges, and God takes them from, delivers them. God reveals himself as this great deliverer who takes them from slavery and through miraculous powers, delivers them, provides for them, does these wonderful things. And we're saying, wow, that's quite the God. But we also look and we say, 613 commandments? What's up with that? What's up with all the laws? <laughs> Is that what you're about, God? 
And the killing. <laughs> I mean, there's so much blood all over the place. Kill this person, kill that, go out, slaughter everyone, the babies. Is that, is, that, is that what you're about, God? Blurry. See, it's all just a little bit, hmm, what is God like? Well, we move from there to um, the kings, <laughs> the game of thrones. I think how you put it. I like that. The game of thrones. And that's exactly what it was. Oh, we have David and Solomon with all the sort of good, yeah, 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 power, go, go, go. Kingdom extends, wonderful. But then we have slowly but surely this fall into captivity and exile. And uh, it's not pretty at all. And we're left asking, you know, why, why this, Lord? Is it because you punish, you're punishing our sins? If so, there are people who are wickeder than us. Why are they prospering? Why are they our captors? They're worse than we are. And God, why are you so silent? We've repented already. How long? These are the big questions that we're left with as we kind of come through our trek so far. And that's where we find ourselves today. Here we are, 600 years in captivity, <laughs> being passed around from conqueror to conquerors, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, to the... Persians to the Greeks and now to the Romans. How long, God? How much longer will you keep going on with this? But there's a rumor that something is changing. Something, someone is coming. The rumor is that this person special. They're calling him the Messiah, the anointed one, all right? The king. I mean, that's what you do with, right? The anointed one. Maybe God is finally awakening from his slumber. Maybe God is going to rescue us. And now, today, this day, this Palm Sunday, he is coming into Jerusalem on a colt. The same thing that King Solomon rode into on his coronation. This is going to be it. So what do you do? You grab your palm branches, you raise them up high, and you say, Hosanna! You know what Hosanna means? A lot of times we think it means hallelujah. Right? Praise God. You know what it actually means? Save us. When we say Hosanna, we're actually saying, save us. So as, as, as Jesus is riding in, because that's who it is, this King Jesus is riding in on his donkey. We are singing our hosannas. We're saying, Son of David, save us. Hosanna in the highest. Palm branches. This could be it. <laughs> I think the crowd's kind of on to something but they don't know the half of it. <laughs> they realize there's something special about this King Jesus. But listen to how the author to the letter of he to he the Hebrews puts it. Listen to this. He says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors many times and in many ways through the prophets. But in these last days, 
he's spoken to us through his son, all right? Through his son. Through his son, God created the world, and it will all belong to the son at the end. He's talking about Jesus. This son, catch this, perfectly mirrors God and is stamped with God's nature. He holds everything together by what he says. Powerful words. That phrase perfectly mirrors God and is stamped with God's nature. It's interesting. It's kind of fun just to read different translations and how they go about translating that that idea. Let me just let me just capture some of them for you. He's, one says, "The sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. He's the exact likeness of God's own being." Says the another translation, "The exact representation of God's being, the perfect copy of God's nature, the stamp of God's very being." It's this idea that you know, if this is the original. And I have one of those, it's the exact same thing, all right? If you had any question about what God is like, this eliminates the ambiguity. This son is the exact image, the splitting image of God. Paul, uh, John puts it this way. He said, you know, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The Word dwelt with God, and what the Word was, God was. What God was, the Word was. These two, you look at one, you see the other, right? If we're wondering what's God's, what God is like, this is the one to look to, King Jesus. So let's do that. Let's take a look. Let's answer this question. What is God really like? And let's look at this person, Jesus, as we tell the story. But let's go back to the beginning. How's he started off? Well, Luke has him beginning his ministry with, in the temple. And one of the attendants comes up to him and hands him the scroll of Isaiah. All right, so he's got the scroll. Well, Jesus unrolls it and looks to a passage and then says, he reads it. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. And recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolls up the scroll. Passes it back to the attendant. And sits down. And says. The scripture you just heard has been fulfilled this very day. If you want to know what Jesus is about, that's what Jesus is about. If you want to know what God's about, that's what God's about. Why? Because they're the exact same. Like, they're the express image, right? The stamp. One's the other. You look at one, you see the other. You look at the other, you see the other, right? That's what they're about. So, what does Jesus do? He gets down to work fulfilling his mandate. He goes about, he heals the sick. He releases the captives from their chains. He cleanses the lepers. He gives the sight. He gives sight to the blind. He restores hearing to the deaf. 
He raises the dead. When John the Baptist is in prison, he's kind of discouraged. He says, you know, Jesus, are, are you the one I'm looking for? Or should I look for another? Jesus sends the disciple back and says, look what's happening. You've seen the sight being restored. You've seen hearing being restored. You've seen the dead being raised. Dot, dot, dot. This is King Jesus. This is God coming to set up his kingdom, establish his kingdom for us. The ambiguity is starting to fade. And we're saying, oh, this I like. This is, going to, this is the sort of king that I'm looking for. I've got a few aches. My psoriasis is acting up. You know, I could use a little, right? I want this. Heal me. And in fact, that's what people say when they have, when after he raised the, um, after he raised the dead to life, the widow of Nain said, yes, this is the king we've been hoping for. Exactly what we've been looking for. Finally, some relief. And when the people saw what Jesus had done, they exclaimed, a great prophet has appeared among us. God has come to save his people. Save us. Hosanna. Right? <laughs> but then Jesus opens his mouth. <laughs> and suddenly, it's not quite as popular. He says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom. Blessed are you who weep now, for in due time you will laugh. But woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who laugh now, for you, you will mourn and weep. Hmm. If you're one of the poor and the oppressed, this is pretty good news. But if you're from the establishment, if you're one of the wealthy people, the powerful, this is a bit disturbing because the whole order is like turned upside down, right? What's, what's low is made high. What's fallen is exalted. The humble are lifted up. The proud are cast down. But it keeps going. And if the rich and wealthy and powerful were disturbed at the first ones, but the poorest were kind of happy, when Jesus continues, no one's real happy. Because what the poor and the oppressed were longing for was a little bit of vengeance and relief. I mean, come on in and destroy Rome, <laughs> right? That's what they wanted. Instead... He says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to them, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. It doesn't sound much like the conquering king that I was expecting. <laughs> right? I mean, love? Really? I was looking for vengeance. I was looking for a little bit of punishment. 
That was kind of what I was hoping for, if, if you really want to know Jesus. Um, this is all fine and good, but next, <laughs> someone else, please, <laughs> right? It's kind of that sort of stuff. I think this passage is almost so familiar that it's kind of lost its punch for us, all right? We're so familiar, it just kind of washes over us. But if Jesus is the stamp of God's glory, if he is the splitting image of God, is this how you picture God? Is this how you think God will treat his enemies? <laughs> Catch me here. Do you see God as a punishing God, a vengeful God? I want to suggest today that if you do, this doesn't seem to be the one that Jesus presents to us. We'll need to unpack that a little bit further, and I'm sure we'll have some conversations afterwards. <laughs> All right? This doesn't seem to be what Jesus presents. He says, no, love, do good, do to others as you would have them do to you. This is not the image of God that maybe we've come to expect. And if now the poor, the rich, and even us are a little bit unsettled by all this stuff, it gets worse. <laughs> because if you're tempted to think that God can't tolerate sin, doesn't like being around sinners, Jesus smashes that one too. Because you know who he hangs around with all the time? It's like the worst of the worst. He hangs around the tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes. He goes for supper with them. He blesses them. He forgives them. He's, Jesus, this isn't the way you're supposed to work. There's one story that I find particularly unsettling to me as sort of the way I was brought up, and especially if I think about Jesus being the express image of God, the stamp of God. One day Jesus is standing around, and the righteous people come up to him, and they bring him a woman who's been found right in the act of adultery. <laughs> they drag her in there, poor girl, right? There she is. I have no idea where the where the man is, but there she is. And they say, Jesus, Moses, you know Moses, right? Moses said we should stone this woman. She's caught in adultery, we should stone her. What do you say? Well, Jesus is just doodling something on the ground we have no idea and just keeps on doodling. They keep nagging him. What should we do, Jesus? What should we do? Should we stone her? Could we stone her? Could we pick up stones and kill her? Yeah, can we? Can we? Can we? <laughs> keeps on doodling. Finally, he relents, just looks up and says, the person who has so, no sin, have them cast the first stone. Let the one with no sin throw the first one. Goes back to doodling. Gradually, you hear the stones start to fall on the ground. And slowly but surely, they say the oldest one's left first. <laughs> they just trickle out of there. 
after a while, you can only imagine this woman thrown on the ground, huddled, crying undoubtedly. It's now just seeing Jesus. She looks at her and says, Are there none here to accuse? Are there none left? Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? He says, no one, sir. And then he says this wild thing. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, again, I'm going to come back to this notion, clarifying our image of God. Right? I want to say something right now that is maybe a little shocking. I am not convinced that God punishes sin. I don't think he does. That's not the Jesus we have here. If it's express image of God, that's not what Jesus does. It's not what God does. Sin has its own way of condemning. Sin is its own punishment. If you've been there, you know it. The lie, the cheat, the steal, it does a pretty good job of punishing us on its own. That's not the way God acts. But I, I, I know what you're going to say, Craig, but yes, it's justice, Craig. You can't, you can't look at one side. God's love and justice, and, and we, have this, we almost pit one against the other. Oh, when I read the Old Testament and the New Testament, I see something different. God's justice flows out of his mercy. See, God's justice is about right relationships. When he bends down and says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He is being both merciful and just. He is restoring this woman. He, when we talk about God's justice and his mercy, In God, they fit beautifully together. Our notion of justice, we're about punishment, retribution, eye for an eye. Come on, it's not fair. Give me, let me, let him have it, right? But not so with God. God is all about restorative justice. God's justice about, is about healing and restoring and freeing and releasing. And that's the God that we have. Jesus shows that to us. And and I don't know what your concept of God is here today, but chances are there could be a little bit of the other in there. And I'm here to say to you, that is not the God that Jesus presents to us. So you're saying, Craig, are you saying God's soft on sin? Well, yeah. Well, sort of. <laughs> because you know who he goes after real hard? the righteous ones, the religious ones. He goes after them real hard. He says, can we just read it here? He, he, he goes out and he says, you know, you're all interested in tithing and giving 10%. You even take your dill seeds. Have you ever seen a dill seed? Like they are so small. He said, you go to your spice rack and you even start sorting out. Here's 90 for me, here's 10 for you. 90 for you, me, 10 for you. Right? You even tithe your friggin' spices. You do all that stuff. 
but you neglect mercy and justice and honesty. I love the way those truth, right? Mercy and truth have kissed each other. Yes, in God, that's not, that's not a, an incompatibility. They go together because that's how God's justice is. It flows from his mercy. That's what Jesus shows us. That's not our sense of justice, but it's God. And so he says to, the, to these Pharisees and righteous people, you're hypocrites. Yeah, on the outside, you look all good. You, you're, like, you're like whitewashed tombs, sepulchers. You paint the outside. Oh, it looks good, glistening in the sun. But inside, there's a smelling, rotting corpse there. You say, well, Jesus, you're being pretty hard on these guys, aren't you? That doesn't sound very merciful. I mean, they're trying their hardest. They really are. And that's exactly the point. They're trying their hardest. This questing after perfection is so hard. Actually, Jesus is being so merciful. He's trying to show them for once. Even your best righteousness is its a mess. It's a mess. That's why he says to the rich young ruler who's trying so hard and, and doing this, that, whatever, he says, you know, Jesus, how, am I good enough now? Am I good enough? Now? Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Oh, I can't do that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Until you realize you can't do that, you can never fully understand and appreciate God's lavish love for you. You can't. That's why he says in the Beatitudes, he says, you know, Moses said, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say, if you even look at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. You've heard it said, here he's sort of setting himself up as a new Moses. You've heard it said, do not murder. But I say, if you even look at your brother with hatred, you're already guilty of it. It's this wonderful gift to those who are sick and sinful. He gives the gift of forgiveness and sends them on the way saying, go and sin no more. Leave your life of sin because it'll kill you. It'll punish you. It'll beat you down. But to those who are feeling pretty good about themselves, even though they know there's a stench of a corpse sitting inside, He's trying to release them from all that. <clears throat> Finally, Jesus attacks the temple himself, itself. That temple had been a, well, he says, you've made it a den of robbers, not a house of prayer. He goes in, forms a whip, John says, and starts overturning the temples they've commercialize the whole faith. They're just in it to make a buck, and he overturns the temples. This is not what God wants for this place. It's a house of prayer, not a place of commerce. But what do you do with somebody like this? <laughs> Here we are minding our own business outside of Jerusalem. And here he comes, the anointed one, King Jesus, the son, the stamp of God. 
And he comes riding on his coronation donkey into the city of David. What do you do? Well, at first you say, save us, until you realize what that means. And then you say, oh, sorry, that's a little too much. None of that. I, 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 I can't. That's, that's too upside down. I mean, it's just... If you were going to go after them, okay, but not if you're going to go after me. And then so we put down our palm branches, exchange them for whips. Our praises become taunts. Our adoration becomes accusation. And we kill this man <laughs> we kill Jesus we kill King Jesus we kill the son what else would you do I mean that's what any normal person would do if they were threatened like this kill him you can hardly blame me and that's where we find ourselves this week Holy Week. We killed Jesus. We will not have this man, this king, this son to rule over us. We execute God because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. We kill him. And you know what? <laughs> he turns the other cheek. He forgives. He does everything that he called us to do. The express image of God, the stamp of God. We watch him. You know, we asked two big questions when we started out. <laughs> what is God like? It's a little unnerving. What is God like? It's not kind of what I expected. I still had some blurry kind of images. I, is it God or is it a dog? I'm not quite sure. <laughs> right? I had this sort of... But the second one is, why do the righteous suffer? And why is God silent? Well, Jesus... Shows that the righteous suffers because this world is a broken place. It's a busted place and the righteous suffer. But if you think that God is silent, well, God is suffering right there with you. You look to the cross and you say, there is God. God is absorbing the pain. God is bearing our sin, our brokenness, the brokenness of the world. He's got it all on his back. I mean, he's feeling the full brunt of all of our hatred, our wickedness. He's experienced it all. That's God crucified for us. God is not silent. God suffers with us. He is the wounded one, the crucified one. Now, I realize that Jesus didn't come here 
simply to correct our false notions about God. <laughs> we didn't just need more information about God. We need to be rescued. We need to be saved. We need to be redeemed, restored, healed. We need all that. And come back next week <laughs> because that's the great news of Easter. This is not the end of the story. But we also needed to readjust, refocus our notion of who God is and what he's about. It was just so blurry. This tells us that the God we serve is a God who at his core is mercy and love and justice and, those, and truth. And those fit together quite beautifully without a problem. We eat this. We hear this same God saying, come <laughs> to, this, to, his vic, to his, the villains, to the, uh, the executors, to all those who killed. He says, come, eat bread, juice, drink with me. Come to my table. I'm quite happy, quite content eating with sinners. Join, join in. Eat, take. This is my body broken for you. Sometimes we're tempted to think that God is a dog. <laughs> but when we look at Jesus, the express stamp, the perfect image of God, we see this is one to love. You have your cue cards right there with you. And what we're doing over this during the season of Lent is kind of taking some time to do some writing. My suggestion this time is it's kind of simple. God, you are so, and just spend some time pouring out to God how you love him, what you appreciate. This is a great God that we serve and love and adore who came and gave himself for us. If this is kind of new for you, please, let's chat more. If your concept was something different or, or, or this is a message you've been wanting to hear, talk, let's talk, all right? Happy to do that. But take a moment to write and then thank. Thank you in Jesus' name. We're going to eat, drink, and be thankful. And here again, the words of Jesus. Neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. Let me pray. Father, we give you thanks for this bread. We give you thanks for this juice. What gifts, what precious gifts. And at such great cost. We are so foolish. We get you wrong so often. In fact, even when we see your extravagant love, we're tempted to pull away. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Especially when you find that living God loves you so deeply. That's fearful. Knows me intimately knows all my darkest secrets, and still wants to hang out with me. God, we take these gifts and remember your great gift to us. You rescued us. You revealed your heart to us. It's a broken heart, and we love you. Renew our spirits, restore our souls, strengthen us, and let us walk in the ways of Jesus.
your son, your perfect son, and our dear Savior, whom we love.